This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new session of Congress has begun. The inauguration is a little more than two weeks away. And the country seems as divided as ever. A poll from just last spring showed more than 40 percent of Democrats and Republicans believed the other party's policies were so misguided they posed a threat to the country. More recently, a Gallup poll found 77 percent of Americans believe the U.S. is divided on its most important values. So how can Americans bridge the political divide? That's the question Mark Gerzon of Boulder tackles in his latest book, The Reunited States of America. Gerzon is a professional mediator who's worked to resolve disputes in Congress, at the United Nations, and in developing countries. And welcome to the program. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you. You write, the urge to reunite the states of America comes at precisely the time when they are most divided, adding in other increasingly dysfunctional dynamics, gerrymandered districts, money-saturated campaigns, closed primaries. America is facing a political crisis so severe that public confidence is plummeting. What are the risks if that continues for stuff? Well, I think the risks are that we become the divided states of America. Uh, That was the subtitle of a book I wrote 20 years ago, and I was struck that Time Magazine this year, when they put Donald Trump on the cover as their man of the year, they said, President of the Divided States of America. I think that's accurate. You ask a really important question, though, in this book. Is the country so divided, or is it just that the two parties are? How did you come to answer that question? Well, I think people um, are divided um, naturally across a spectrum of beliefs. Um, But when you have two microphones in the room, and one is way over on the left, and the other microphone is way over on the right, and then you say to everybody in the room, hey, you know, let us know what you think. Everybody has to go way over to the left to talk or way over to the right to talk. And I think, you know, symbolically, that's what's happening in our culture now, that we are basically forcing a really rich mosaic of opinions and beliefs We're forcing them into a red box or a blue box. And then we're pitting the red box and the blue box against each other uh, as if it was some kind of, you know, World Wrestling Federation kind of, you know, uh, championship. I think what struck me about your thesis here is that changing that won't necessarily start in Washington, D.C., but that it's something that we're all responsible for. Um, Do you think that's a, a correct framing, Mark? I do. I think that uh, the subtitle, you know, is that how we can bridge the partisan divide. The we is the American people, because I think it's going to start with us. Um, We're not hired to be Democrats and Republicans. You know, our politicians are. Uh, They get to Washington and they're meeting now in Congress as, you know, the red team and the blue team. But you and I, um, citizens, the people listening to this show, we're not hired to be red or blue. We can be any technicolor truth that we, you know, truly are. And that's, that's what I believe, is if every citizen was true to who they truly are, uh, we'd have a mosaic of opinion and there'd be a lot of common ground. There'd be some, you know, severe d- disagreements on some issues and there'd be some, you know, breakthroughs on common ground on others. Um, when I worked with Congress, uh, I was struck by the fact that, you know, it was the beginning of the period when they said, let's oppose whatever the other side does. That was the beginning. And it's gone on for 20 years that whatever the other side does will oppose. That's not leadership. You know, that's just knee- knee-jerk reactivity. And yet the systems in place to keep this true, that is the two-party system, for instance, and uh, how 
campaigns are run and how they're funded, all of those are deeply entrenched and very hard to change. Um, so is there some, I don't know, in this a, a Pollyanna uh, view of how the country operates? No, I, I, I don't, I'm not Pollyannish at all. In fact, um, when I worked with Congress, I got an up-close look at the dysfunction and it's gotten only worse since the years that I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked on for four years on Capitol Hill. So I'm not Pollyannish at all about Capitol I think what I have a positive outlook about, um, and it is a positive outlook, is about the American people. Because all across this country, um, you know, I profile 40 organizations in my book that are building bridges across the divide. They're in Kansas City. They're in Tallahassee. They're in Colorado. Um, they're literally all over the country. And they're doing inspiring work. Um, on every issue, on almost every issue. The problem is that they don't get any attention. So most Americans, they know all about, you know, Donald Trump's hair and Hillary Clinton's emails, um, but they don't know about, you know, what No Labels is doing. They don't know what the Village Square is doing in Tallahassee. Uh, they don't know what, you know, uh, the, the National Institute for Civil Discourse is doing. They don't know that in 25 legislatures, state legislatures around the country, there's red and blue groups meeting for dialogue and learning to know each other and work together. This is simply not known to the American people. And I think it's not Pollyannish at all to say this is what is actually happening and to shine a spotlight on it. That's not Pollyannish. I would call that patriotism, actually. Tell us about No Labels and some of the work it's doing. Well, No Labels is uh, a Washington-based group that has gotten 90 members of Congress on the right and the left to be part of a problem-solving caucus. And we'll see what they do. We'll see how serious they are. But the idea behind it is, hey, let's work together on things that we care about, set some long-term goals for our country, and work together on it. And they're swimming upstream because the you know party leaders there want to pull the two parties apart. Um, just like they have you know, for the last 20 years. But the No Labels is doing a pretty heroic job, and I, I'm impressed with their effort to do it. But it, by itself, it won't accomplish anything. It needs the American people to be paying attention. And I'd say still only one out of 100 Americans know that No Labels exists. So it has some work to do. I want to say that your book came out before Trump's victory, and I wonder if he changes the whole equation in some instance, for better or for worse. Um, I do think of the tweet that he sent on the last day of 2016, though. Happy New Year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly they just don't know what to do. Love. <laughs> well, what does that right. tell you about, about the desire at the top to bridge the partisan divide? And I'll say that in, in other circles, Trump has talked about wanting to be a, a uniter. Um, so th this message clashes a little bit with what he said, for instance, after he won uh, in his victory speech. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, um, I'm not optimistic about the top. Um, I think the top is going to play the polarized game because that's the only game it knows how to play. Um, but I do think on every other level, from state legislatures on down, there are some chances for us to break new ground. And every state, such as Colorado is a laboratory of democracy. That's the way the Founding Fathers set it up. So if our congressional delegation and our state legislature uh, wanted to play a different game, if we could start playing a game that says, let's do what's good for Colorado, and obviously we Democrats and Republicans here in the state have differences, but let's do what's good for the state. Let's not play Washington's game and let them pit ourselves against each other. Colorado could break some new ground, and I think that's true in the other states as well, and I'm talking in a number of states, seeing if we can get an inspiration going. When I was in Utah uh, for something called the Utah Citizen Summit right before the election, 
I was struck by the fact that there's a groundswell of energy in Utah that's building to really put Utah first and put Utah first before the Democratic-Republican game. So I think the truth is we'll see more uh, action happening on the state level than on the national level right now, except if we have a crisis. And a crisis could uh, obviously um, send a jolt through Capitol Hill. What do you mean by that? I mean that, um, you know, when Congress drags its feet and doesn't do its job, uh, whether it's on, you know, disaster relief or health care or whatever, uh, the American people get angry. And when the American people get angry, we're a powerful force. I remember, uh, you know, the voice of a farmer whose, you know, whose who's farm in Pennsylvania was flooded during one of the, you know, hurricanes. And, you know, Congress was supposed to take some action and offer some relief. But because they were playing political games with the bill on the Capitol Hill, he didn't get his relief. And here was this ordinary farmer in Pennsylvania who started, you know, organizing to get some action in Washington because he'd woken up to the fact that they weren't really looking out for him. Well, you know, that was a local disaster. But I think if we see some some meddling, for example, with health care and the 20 million people who got on Obamacare, if, if their Obamacare is pulled out from under them, I think we'll see some citizen action to defend Obamacare, just like we saw some citizen action, you know, to attack Obamacare. Um, and what really troubles me is that the way the game is played now, we get second-rate legislation. So, you know, as Obama said in his interview on CNN last night, you know, he's he's proud of Obamacare, but he he's the first to say, no, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. It has some serious flaws because of all the second-rate compromises that had to be made because of the way our system works. And I... I what really angers me is when we put our troops on in the line of fire and then pull the rug out from under them and change our policies. Or somebody back in Washington is saying, oh, I'm not sure we really should have done that. Well, your son or daughter has just put their life on the line, and you've got people in Washington questioning the policy. I think that's actually an, an outrage. I think it's immoral. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Mark Gerzon of Boulder, his Latest book is called The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. And um, we mentioned that you worked with members of Congress. This was in 96, some 20 years ago. You were trying to help the House of Representatives resolve conflicts. And that was a time when the Republicans were in control of the House and the Senate and Democrat Bill Clinton was in the White House. What was the atmosphere like then? And was, was it as bad as it is now? It wasn't as bad, fortunately, but it was bad enough that they said we need to do something about it. And it was an incredibly gratifying experience. I mean, it was the largest peacetime movement of members of Congress in history. 230 members of the House and their spouses went off to a retreat site at Hershey, Pennsylvania. And it was an amazing experience to watch them work through their anger issues, deal with their mistrust, actually map out what was wrong with the American political system, how it was affecting Capitol Hill and how it was affecting we citizens. And and they really committed themselves to doing something about it. And I left that retreat extremely excited, and my excitement lasted till the Tuesday morning when they got back to Capitol Hill. <sighs> um, and at that point, uh, the two party leaders basically, you know, killed everything that they'd come up with. And I entered a period of real, you know, disillusionment. Some, I lost faith in myself. I lost faith in the institutions, and I lost faith in, you know, in in my work as a mediator. I, I really, I went into a period of, of real um, questioning, and that's when I had to go a little deeper in myself and 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 look for some deeper answers. And and that's what I've tried to do in the United States of America: say, what what are the deeper challenges? And if we really love this country, if we really love this country, and you know, by the way, ninety percent of Americans do. They say they're very patriotic. What does it mean to love your country? And what do you really do as a citizen if you really love your country? 
And so I suppose that's what brought you to looking for solutions outside of Washington. Is, is, was that the epiphany from that dark place you went into? Yeah, I decided to study all the groups in America who were bridging across the divide. And at first I thought, you know, there was 12 or 15, and I would just interview those people and learn about those 12 or 15 projects. Well, I was so wrong. There's more like 200 or 300 such groups, and you know, 40, 60 of them are now in an organization that we built called the BridgeAlliance.us. So if, if people want to find out what 60 of those organizations are, just go to BridgeAlliance.us, and you'll find 60 groups across the country who are all bridging the divide in their own way. And what I did was studying them. I said, what, what are these folks doing that's different than what our politicians are doing? And I saw three, three, three themes, that they're three ways of being a patriotic citizen that they're doing that our leaders aren't doing. The first is they're learning. They enter a situation not saying, I'm going to persuade these you know, jerks on the other side that I'm right. They enter the situation saying, what can I learn and how can we come up with a new idea? So they're interested in learning, number one. Number two, they actually care about relationship, not just winning they care about relationship. They care about the relationship between Democrats and Republicans. And they know that whoever wins on election day, on the day after the election, they're going to have to work together. And how they work together determines the quality of life in America, just like how a father and mother work together determines the quality of life in their, in their house. It's the same basic dynamic. So relationship matters was the second thing in these organizations. And third was problem solving, that because they were interested in learning, because they were interested in the relationship, they actually had a capacity to solve problems and not just shouted each other about guns or shouted each other about immigration or shouted each other about the economy, but to sit down and say, we've got a problem. How do we fix it? I think that's something that happens in communities all across Colorado all the time, because when you have a problem in your community, you want it fixed. You don't want just people shouting at each other and then the problem there the next day. So those three things is what are what I found to make a real kind of somebody who's part of the movement to reunite America. They're interested in learning relationship and problem solving. Leave us with this, what it means to become transpartisan. This is a term that you introduced me to. Maybe you invented it. I'm not sure. Um, in about the last minute, what does it mean to be transpartisan? Well, transpartisan means that, you know, you, you wake up and you go, I'm, I'm basically a conservative. Or you say, I'm, I'm basically liberal or you, whatever you are. You're basically whoever you are. And I respect your you know place on the political spectrum. But you say that you realize that you're part of something called the United States of America with people with different points of view. Transpartisan means that you're willing as a Democrat or a Republican independent to work with people different from yourself to find common ground when it comes to the challenges facing this country that we all love. So it's just transpartisan means a willingness to go beyond your own partisan views, which we all have, and work together with people different than yourself. It's not asking too much. It's actually what the founding fathers expected of us. That's why they built public education, you know, like the University of Colorado, into the f basic structure of our society. They wanted us to be learners. They wanted us to be an educated citizenry who knew how to work through differences together. They knew that was the key to democracy, and I don't want to disappoint them. That is Mark Gerzon of Boulder, president of the Mediators Foundation, and his most recent book is The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's shatter a myth that undocumented workers steal IDs so they can work. University of Colorado anthropologist Sarah Horton says, by and large, it's not true. Her newly published research shows immigrant workers are often victims, not perpetrators of identity crimes. She's on the phone with us. Sarah, welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. If undocumented workers carry false IDs to help them work and they're not stealing them, how are they getting them? Right. So what I found is that media portrayals vastly underestimate the role that employers play in providing workers with the documents that they work. So in agriculture, some undocumented workers do use fake documents with their own name and an invented social security number. So that is, they purchase a set of fake documents, documents that have been been invented and do not belong to others. But in terms of valid documents, it's much more common for workers to work valid documents provided them by their employers than for them to actually go out and purchase a set of valid documents on the black market. And this is because loaning workers valid documents actually benefits employers in multiple ways. What are some of those ways that employers would be, if you will, complicit? Right. So I started out doing my research. I was very interested in the different kinds of hiring practices of agricultural employers and how they varied by size. And what I I found is that large companies typically are concerned about federal raids or audits. Um, They, because of their size and perhaps the visibility of their brand, uh, they basically attempt to avoid federal raids and audits. Um, so they typically establish tip, uh, official policies of not hiring undocumented workers. But this presents a real dilemma for some of the labor supervisors on the ground who uh, need to find enough workers to fill their teams. Um, so labor supervisors, for example, oftentimes qualify the official company policy. And they tell workers, yes, we need valid documents, but they don't need to be yours. And so they either encourage workers to borrow documents from their friends and families, or they, in fact, loan workers documents themselves. And they do this really in a strategy that I call identity masking, because by loaning workers documents that belong to other individuals, usually the friends and family members of labor supervisors, they're able to mask the presence of undocumented workers in this company. Hmm. And that's because the official policy is not to hire them. Uh, So that's why the masking would have to occur. So are you saying that that these kind of managers on the ground in these big ag operations would have a file of of IDs to loan out or, or what would it look like? Right. So oftentimes these managers are actually loaning out the valid documents of their friends and family. And um, this is. It's a, it benefits them in a couple of different ways. So as, as we discussed, it makes it appear to the federal government as though all of the employees of this company are legal right. um, be, because it avoids any mismatch between the name of the worker and the Social Security number. It appears you know, to the federal government that a legal citizen or permanent resident is in fact employed, whereas the, the employee is undocumented. But it also benefits the labor supervisor in different ways. So, for example, when an undocumented worker works a citizen's or legal permanent resident's identity, he or she is sinking money into that person's not only Social Security account, but also unemployment benefits. They're padding the wage history of this identity donor, as oh. it were, who isn't working. Right. And so it's, it's an interesting way that labor supervisors have learned to create a profit from undocumented workers' exclusion from Social Security and unemployment. And, and all, oftentimes what happens as well is the identity donor gives the labor supervisor a kickback as a thank you for you know, padding their unemployment earnings so that when, they, when the undocumented worker stops working, the, the, the identity donor can actually receive more in unemployment benefits. Wow, this just seems like ripe for federal investigation. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's you know it's it's interesting how organized that practice can be in you know some industries like agriculture that you know basically are able to escape a lot of um, state and federal oversight. How did you find this out? Yeah, so when I was in the valley, I, I would hear oftentimes from workers. Um, and tell us, tell us which valley. Remind us which valley this is. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah, it's the Central Valley in um, in California. So um, the San Joaquin Valley in California. And um, I would often hear from workers their concerns about, I, I was really actually investigating why workers oftentimes don't file for workers' compensation benefits when they're eligible for them. And I would hear workers tell me that, well, if you're working other people's papers, you can't be eligible for benefits. Um, and they told me about a variety of ways that employers, um, in fact, loan them papers so that they don't feel comfortable um, coming forth and filing a claim. Um, and because these workers, when they're working uh, papers loaned by, by their employers, they're worried about being complicit in, you know, identity fraud of some kind, even though they're the, the recipients of these loans. And what does that mean for them practically? I mean, in terms of if they're injured on the job or something right. like that, because that, that's where, again, that's where you began. Yeah, exactly. So what it means is that, so if a worker is working loan documents, um, so, you know, I did interviews with workers' compensation attorneys to find out, well, you know, is this practice, you know, widespread throughout, you know, California, first of all, and second of all, are these workers eligible for workers' compensation benefits if they're injured while working, you know, papers loaned by an employer, for example? And they are, in fact, eligible for these benefits. Um, But, um, you know, they're oftentimes really concerned about actually filing a claim. And also, because they're working under another name, they actually don't appear on the roster of the official employees of the company. So they're essentially invisible employees. Um, And it turns out that some labor supervisors have actually, some companies appear to have an unofficial policy of um, basically they, they tell their super labor supervisors to tell workers that they can't get care if they're injured while working other people's papers. So it's a way that some key companies have devised to suppress workers' compensation claims. I guess then it would be important to create an environment in which you could speak up about working conditions, poor working conditions. Is that the case? Right. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, right. So if, if workers are, are feeling that they don't have recourse to complain about labor violations and maybe, you know, many undocumented workers aren't aware that they are covered by labor laws um, and that those laws should apply to them equally. Um, Right. They won't come forward and actually discuss their abuses. Did you meet workers who became ill and felt they had no recourse? Yes, I I did. Um, You know, I've heard of many cases of of workers who did not come forward when they were ill. And just this past summer, when I was visiting one of my long-term interviewees, um, it turned out that um, just the day before, her grandson, who was um, 17 and was given an identity by his employer um, in order to to mask his presence because he was a prohibited worker as a teen under 18, working in the fields more than 48 hours a week. So his employer was violating child labor laws and actually hiring him. And he was, you know, given a set of identity documents to work. And he had grown ill due to the heat the day before. There were, it was a a week of several days over 100 degrees. And he vomited at work. 
And his labor supervisor sent him to sit in the van, um, which lacked air conditioning. So he didn't take him home. He didn't take him to the doctor, which is what he should have done, um, because he was an inconvenient injury for the man. And he was able to basically uh, discourage him from filing a claim to get any medical treatment and follow up, um, despite the fact that he was dizzy and feeling nauseous all day in the van. So, yes, this is a you know it's a real problem that discourages workers from coming forward um, to collect, really to get their workers' compensation that they're eligible for and to get medical treatment. We're speaking with anthropologist from CU Denver, Sarah Horton, about what she has discovered. Uh, in the farm fields, in her case, she was in central California. But I think what I'm hearing you say is that, Sarah, a lot of this is widespread in, in agriculture. Right, right. So, yeah, so the, so it is. it does appear to be widespread in agriculture. And it's interesting because there's evidence that this form of identity masking that I described is also... Um, present in other industries that are really heavily reliant on undocumented labor. Um, so, for example, um, during the, the raid of um, Agriprocessors, Inc. in Postville, Iowa, this is another example in which um, during this raid, uh, the federal government initially prosecuted um, 389 undocumented workers for identity theft. Um, and it turned out that a year later, um, several plant managers and human resource employees were, in fact, convicted of various charges, including identity theft, that is, of providing workers with the documents that they needed to work. Mm. Um, in this case, they were, they were fake documents. So I guess what I'm you know, really saying is that um, while this you know, case study in California really revealed some of the strategies that employers use to provide workers with documents to work, these practices appear to be fairly evident in other industries that rely on undocumented workers. Just briefly, there's another illegal identity-related practice you discovered called Trabajando Fantasma, uh, which I think it translates to working ghost. Can you, um, in about a minute, explain what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So really, this is another form of identity masking. And what I found is that employers um, give workers identities um, to work on Sundays, um, some employers do, um, in an effort to avoid overtime. Um, and so workers say that they're working as a ghost on Sunday. They call Some workers call Sunday el, el Dia del Fantasma, or the Day of the Ghost. Huh. Um, and so what this refers to is when um, employers are able to disguise the fact that these workers are employed more than 60 hours a week, which would entitle them to overtime in California, um, by giving them another identity to work on Sundays. So it's a way that employers use identity masking not only to violate immigration laws, but also labor laws. That's Sarah Horton, anthropology professor at CU Denver. Her research shows that undocumented workers are often the victims of identity crimes. This is CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The music of folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff is often intimate, sometimes like a whisper but it has a much bigger sound on his latest album.
backed on this record by the Colorado Symphony. And he'll play live with the symphony next week at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. Over the years, when I've interviewed Isakoff, his Boulder County farm looms large. Agriculture brought him to Colorado. This is his refuge, and when he's not on the road, he says he buys the largest container of coffee creamer he can, so he never has to leave the place. His studio is also here. It's where he mixed this album, and we walked around the property together. This is a butter lettuce, heirloom butter lettuce. Um, Three varieties of kale, arugula, six varieties of broccoli rabe, four varieties of beets, chard. And this, again, will be all seed we're saving, you know. You're essentially a seed farm this year. This year, yeah. So do you think of yourself as a farmer... A musician, a farmer musician? I don't know. I, I mean, I went to horticulture school. That's how I came out to Colorado. Music was sort of something that I just did in, in the privacy of my kitchen for nobody forever. And then I started playing out, and it kind of just scared the shit out of me. And I was like, I better do this. You, you know? I think the term these days everyone is using is you leaned in to the fear. I did. I'm still having fun with it. <laughs> Having fun with the fear. <laughs> yeah. of what are you afraid of about making music? I think it's just um, how vulnerable and uh, the rush of, of being vulnerable and kind of inviting people into your world is such a it's such a trip for me. Are you a more successful farmer or musician? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's they're both things that I'm. I feel like I'm never going to master. <laughs> I think this is my twelfth season of gardening in a spot. You know, um, I've moved around different farms and stuff, but. I'm still like, how does this work? Every time we're seeding, we're like, this is crazy. We put things in the ground, they just come up. Is that a bit like songwriting? I probably, there's probably a lot of connections. I feel like a crazy person every day because I'm just running around, fixing wells, ditches, and running back to the studio to finish something. Or, you know, I feel like I'm constantly just like an insane person in their robe with like bunny slit, you know, cigarette burns all over myself. You know, it's just like an insane person. You have sheep too, don't you? Yeah, we got sheep. You want to come to them? Sure. Oh, there they are. Yeah, there they are. Are those, those are goats. They're sheep. They're, they're sheep. Are. Oh boy, you can tell I've been in the city too long. No, they look like, they're a straight hair sheep. Oh, okay. That's so, why it's throwing me? Called katahdins. Yeah, they, we don't have to shear them. They kind of dread out. So yeah, they're kind of, it's kind of fallen off of them, which are great for touring bands. They're great pets for touring bands. Wait, why are because these great? Because they just, no maintenance. They're just... They're like the cat they're of like, livestock. <laughs> they're the cats of livestock. Do they baa when totally. you're recording? Uh, when they're in the stable sometimes, but we've double insulated that room pretty good. You know, so once in a while you'll get chickens or sheep. Can we go into your studio? Sure. Take you this way. On our way there, though, I want to ask you about this property. So it's got, like, I don't know, five buildings on it, maybe? And, and you live here with some of the bandmates, don't you? Yeah. Um, with Steve, our guitar player, and um, Jamie lives in the back trailer. Our engineer, he also works with Nathaniel. Nathaniel Rateliff mm-hmm. of Now the Night Sweats? So he's never here now, because <laughs> they're always out. And so do you Just think of this as, like, an artist's colony? Yeah, I think everyone here is an artist. Yeah, everyone is. Is this what you pictured it was your a, life being it, it was unintentional but it's I'm pretty stoked 
in the studio, there's a lot of newfangled equipment. I mean, I see an Apple computer, for instance, but I also see, is that like an analog tape machine? Yeah, that? that's, there's a couple tape machines and a couple keyboards. Uh, this is a Rhodes, it's a Whirly, upright piano. And to what extent is your music and this album with the CSO done on analog equipment? All of it was mixed onto tape, through tape. But yeah, we mixed on the computer as well. But what did the tape provide you? It always kind of glues records together, in my experience. It's sort of just, um, and you can hear maybe it's a little fuller and more low-end without the tape. Maybe it's like a little more clean and pristine, but then tape kind of glues everything together. It makes it feel like a record. Is it a warmth? It is. Oh, yeah. It has a, a, a lot of warmth. Now I circle the bars on the promenade While the girls in the glass, they just throwing me shade I'm saving my coins of jingle and jade She's out plucking strings in the pouring pour And she's out plucking strings in the pouring rain you recorded with the symphony at Betcher Hall, but then you did post-production here. Yeah. Yeah, this is where I'm making a new record right now as well. Hence every, all the papers and <laughs> microphones and <laughs> drums out right now. So one well-publicized fact about you is that you tend to write lyrics on like these giant post-it notes. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love, well, I, I just get annoyed with flipping pages, you know, with a guitar. And you're like right at the end of the page and you have to like find the next. I hate that feeling. So, so then were those I got, the giant post-its? Yeah, I got it. Then, so I got really into these, these giant post-it notes. So I put them up on this wall, mainly. Will you read a few of these lyrics for me? What's oh, this? Sure. Uh, this, is, this turned into Master and a Hound. This was kind of the rough sketches, hence the coffee. But, uh, you know, it was a different song a little bit. You know, you can tell where it kind of came from. Oh, yeah. Where were you when I was still kind? A water trader waiting on the line. Just a dry gin drink on Master and a hound Turned a circus swinger love He's coming down I understand that the first and the last lyrics of a song are especially important to you? You know, yeah, I'm always hunting for first lines and last lines. I really, you're kind of um, starting the relationship with the song. You're like being proactive and we're going to be like, hey, I got the first line. You want to help me finish this? So it's like this kind of living thing that you're working on. Sometimes it can take months and months and months, you know, to just wait for the rest of it to come. But I, I feel like that's my job initially. So really, is to get on the right footing with a song. Yeah. One thing that I hear in your voice is an intimacy. It draws you in. Like, you're not a belter. Like, I don't know. You're no Ethel Merman. Gregory no, Allen Isaac. <laughs> no. Um, and yet, working with an orchestra, it strikes me that you might have to be a belter. Or maybe there's just good amplification. Did you have to sing differently for this record? No. I, uh, I was curious about how the collaboration was going to work out, just musically and you know, space is really important to me in the music. So, what do you mean by space? It's just kind of the uh, our biggest ally. I'm always adding space, cutting out lines, cutting out action in in music, so things can breathe. So it's spare. Yes, and sparse. So I was like 
really curious about a 75-piece orchestra. Which feels very heavy in Yeah, giant. And so we recorded 15 songs, and yeah, we chose the ones that just really had... They had both. They had that epic, soaring thing that you would kind of expect. And they also have this great intimacy that we were so stoked about that we got. Where does that come out? Give, give me an example of a track. I think Liars is a good track that has like, you know, there's almost nothing for half the song when everything kind of lands. Liar is the one new track for this yes, album, isn't it? it is, yeah. Um, so kind of like that line when it says, uh, Been riding, riding lots, lots of trains. trains. Uh, that's like, you know, 80 of us kind of landing right there. Same ones as you. How come you get to talk to everybody just looking out my window the night you Do you keep on pointing out my halo big pointing finger six fingered hand I sold all this land buy me some dreams just like those How much did you have to change songs so they worked with the orchestra? And you had some help in that, I think, from, oh, yeah, from a member of Devochka. Tom Hagerman, yeah, and, and Jake Clifford. Yeah, from Jump Little Children. Both yeah. killer musicians. And um, totally got the songs. They kind of get it. They weren't interested in, like, we have to use everything all the time, you know? I think there's a lot of woodwinds that are just kind of have 18 bars of rest, which, you know, you want to kind of bring... As an arranger, as a composer, you want to bring everything in eventually, but for some of these songs, just didn't call for it. So um, That has to be the mind-boggling part of working with an orchestra, is there are millions, really, of, of directions you could go. So many options. Gosh, did that keep you up at night? It was like a six to nine month sleepless process. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we'd go back and forth with these arrangements, you know. And they were trippy because they were just MIDI. Um, oh, very kind of lo-fi, low-grade low versions. Of the songs. Even the vocal line was like MIDI male vocal, like keyboard sound. It was like an old cell phone rig. Totally. Okay. And so we were kind of mapping everything out but you could hear you know what it, what they were going to sound like you know and the band and I would rehearse to those MIDI recordings before we got a chance to get into Betcher my conversation with folk singer Gregory Allen Isakoff after a break. He plays with the Colorado Symphony next week. You're hearing our visit to his farm and recording studio last summer. 
When we come back, a preview of his next new album. The working title is Midnight Machines. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation with folk singer and songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff. Last summer, he invited us onto his farm and into his studio in Boulder County. Isakoff's latest album is with the Colorado Symphony, adding an orchestral sound to tracks that mostly come from his previous releases. He'll play live with the symphony next week, but he's been touring with a smaller group of classical musicians. This all means he's had to rework old songs countless times. So I asked if he'd rather be working on brand new stuff. You know, it's funny. I, I'm I'm almost done a new record right now that I've been working on for about a year, and I'm still working on some of the writing. And I'm I usually the way I work is I make a record and then I let it sit for like three to five months. Or some of your fans would say years. Maybe yeah, <laughs> it can it can it can be. And then I come back to them and make sure I still feel something when I hear them, um, because I think when we finish something, we're excited about it. You know, it's our favorite our, our favorite songs are the brand new songs that we're working on today. Right, but if they endure months later in your head, that means they're good. If they live, then you know they're going to live longer. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes the ones I really want to work don't work. So I need that amount of time. That, That amount of time is really a huge ingredient for me to make records. And that isn't necessarily the record business. No. Which I suppose is why you're on your own label, right? Best label ever. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know the boss, I guess, (laughs) don't you? Yeah, Sarah treats me good and... This is Sarah Levine, who's... uh, Sarah Levine's one of my old best friends. She's here with us. We've been working together for, what, a while? Decades, she says. And, you know, she we started out, she lent me her car to play South by Southwest. We drove down to Austin and handmade CDs in the backseat and been working together the whole time. What can you say about the forthcoming album? Um, isn't, this, isn't this wonderful? You've just come out with an, al- an album with the CSO, and I'm already going, what, what next? I love that. Um, <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm always thinking about that, too. I, I'm really excited about this record. Um, Does it have a title yet? Uh, yeah, it's got a working title, Midnight Machines, I've been working on. Midnight Machines? Yeah. What does that mean? It sort of just is what this place looks like in the middle of the night, and there's all these glowing tubes everywhere. And I, I just like always picture that, like, you know, that mad scientist part of us, like <laughs> with the swinging light or something. But a lot of the songs are are new, and then some are like voice memos from like 2011 that I did in like a hotel room or something. And then to remind yourself that, of, a, of a lyric or something. yeah, that never got developed. And so I've been kind of digging into old stuff too, and kind of reworking some writing and. Could we hear a little something from the forthcoming album? Sure. Okay. This is one that um, I just sort of finished that I've been kind of working with for a year or so. What's it called? Uh, San Luis. Like the Valley? Like the Valley. By Road in California. But that's how songs are, you know? Inspiration is not place-specific. No way. But is it about the Valley? Um, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I'm a ghost to you, you're a ghost to me, a bird's eye view, San Luis. Gregory Allen Isaacoff, it seems like a lot of your music has themes of travel, whether it's like a literal road trip across the country or maybe a figurative journey through life. 
first of all, do you agree? <laughs> I think it makes, yeah, I think I, I do draw on a lot of, like, sense of place. And how much of that is this place, where we're standing? A lot of, I make a lot of stuff here. But I like, you know, I write a lot, kind of scribble around everywhere I go. And um, this is my place to kind of go through all of it, you know, yeah. kind of piece it together. A lot of musicians have a hard time writing on the road. It doesn't sound like that's a problem for you. No. I think the practice of writing, you know, I, is something I, I do every day. And then there's a few things that are kind of worthy of song, but a lot of it just goes into the parts yard or just kind of maybe I'll come back to that later, but probably not. But probably not. Yeah. A lot of it will be lost. Man, you do, you've never seen my trash can. It's gigantic. <laughs> the stuff that I throw away is so much, you know. But isn't that a mark of good writing, that you're willing to throw a lot of stuff away and separate the wheat from the chaff? To, to give you a farming metaphor. <laughs> well, I think it's, um, it's part of any art, any craft. You know, you're always refining, refining. And you have to make a lot of material, and you kind of fearlessly, and then... And hopefully you get something good. You, you have been quoted as saying that you don't consider yourself a very strong songwriter. I mean, at the risk of being obsequious, I, I just think that's such baloney. I don't know about anything like that. I, I guess I don't really think um, of myself as like this great musician, you know, like I'm working with all these. My band is amazing. They're all like this understanding of their instruments is incredible and i'm sort of just like banging away on like a c and an f and <laughs> you know and maybe i'll use the capo a couple of times so i i guess that I, I just don't live in that realm when i'm writing i just sort of write to a, a line or a melody and everything falls around that and obviously your band fills in yeah a lot huge yeah i understand that one songwriter you particularly admire is is bruce springsteen yeah i love him what what about him he put out a record in the 90s called ghost of tom joad yeah. which was like maybe one of my favorite records of all time. He's able to paint this landscape so efficiently and tell these stories so amazingly from start to finish. A lot of people listen to music so differently now. I'm a big fan of listening to like whole records, you know, and I make records for people that maybe like to do that too. But I have no judgment about, oh, someone wants to just buy a single or listen to this song while they run or whatever it is, you know. Uh, why don't you leave us with one more track from the new record with the Colorado Symphony? Do you want to say a few words about Big Black Car? Sure. Um, I don't really know where a lot of the songs come from. That particular song, um, I think, was... It happened really quickly. It was one of those songs that I think we get spoiled by as songwriters because some can just be, you know, nine-month situations and that one happened pretty swiftly and what is swift is that like days a hours? day yeah. A, a day yeah you were a phonograph i was a kid i sat with an air close just listening there when the rain tapped away down your face you were a miracle i was just holding your speed what's it about um i don't know hmm it's funny, it's the second time you've said that. It's not important for you to know what a song is about. No. It just, it, the most important thing is that it takes you to a place and then it brings you back somewhere. That's, I think, like the magic of writing, you know, and that's the coolest thing about music is it'll just transport you somewhere. And in this case, in a big black car with the Colorado Symphony. <laughs> yeah. Gregory, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, too. 
Boulder singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakoff. He'll perform with the Colorado Symphony next week at Betcher Concert Hall in Denver. You can find the music video for his song Liars at cprnews.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.